Friends, let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them, and a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When, we had, when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and before heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost but now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, 
you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This, too, is the word of God. Thanks be to God. This is our third week in our sermon series on relationships. We have looked closely at God, God's relational nature, and the ways in which we were created to be in relationship with God and one another. We talked about our family of faith, our relationship with the church. And we turn today to our relationship with family. Uncoincidentally, as today is also Father's Day. Hey, Dad. It is, I suppose, almost a platitude to say that families are complicated, though I think that is also very true. And it is complicated further, I think, when we turn to Scripture for guidance or wisdom on families. Where would we even start? Honor thy father and mother. Hear, my child, your father's instruction, and do not reject your mother's teaching. Children, obey your parents in everything. Wives, be subject to your husband. I hope that you hear the many, many problematic, problematic possibilities in those few verses. The reality is that the Bible is not a how-to guide for how to be a good father or a good mother, a good son, daughter, aunt, uncle, grandparent, etc. For one thing, if we stick to a particular interpretation of the Bible, we would find that many of our families don't quite fit the mold expressed in the Bible. The shape and size of most families don't fit the norm. And it also ignores the possibility, in fact, the reality for many of us, that our family of origin was unable to be the family that we needed or deserved. I have heard it said that family does not end in blood, nor does it necessarily begin there. Chosen family is, in fact, real family. And I'm not sure that a casual mention of the fourth commandment is all that helpful here. I propose, then, that we create for ourselves an expanded understanding of family. And then we ask, how do we faithfully exist in those complicated, sometimes messy relationships that we find in blood or in our families of choosing? So let's turn to our gospel lesson for the day. The parable of the prodigal, or the lost son, is a complicated one if, for no other reason, than it is very familiar. Too familiar, possibly. We know this song and dance well. A man has two sons. One leaves and one stays. The son returned, greeted extravagantly, Rejoice, for this son of mine was lost, but now he is found. Put a bow on it and tell everyone how much God loves us all, especially the wayward children. Now, 
Don't get me wrong, I believe that. But because we know this parable so well, we cease to dig deeper or even open ourselves to new hearings of this message from Luke's gospel. When we peel back the allegory and the interpretation, we find at its core a story about a family in conflict. There was a man who had two sons, our parable opens. The original Jewish audience of this parable would have leaned back in their chairs, settling in to a familiar story. They are familiar with this trope. A man has two sons. One of them will be good and one of them will be bad. Consider Ishmael and Isaac, the sons of Abraham, or Esau and Jacob, the sons of Isaac. And of course, the brothers from our Old Testament lesson, Cain and Abel. I'm not sure, however, that these characters are that cut and dry as calling one good and one bad. Let's start with the younger son. People tend to get hung up immediately on his demanding his inheritance from his father. But culturally and historically, it would not have been so unheard of or so out of the ordinary. It's not great, and it certainly isn't a wise move, but it isn't exactly the slap in the face that people make it out to be. The problem for the younger son is the way in which he spends that inheritance, foolishly blowing through it on fleeting things. He makes poor decision after poor decision and quickly ends up in a strange land with no friends, no connections, and most importantly, nothing to eat. His extravagant spending and lifestyle, plus a little bit of a famine, lead him to serving as a hired hand, caring for pigs. So hungry that he'd gladly eat whatever those pigs left behind. Realizing that he would be more comfortable even serving in his father's house, he decided to return home. And this is something that I find so interesting. We have been told that this story is about repentance, about recognizing our mistakes and saying that we are sorry, but we don't really know if that's what happens for the younger son. We know that he is hungry, and we know that he needs to do something to get back into his father's household. Luke's gospel tells us that the younger son comes to himself, which doesn't mean that he's found, like a lost coin or a lost sheep from the previous parables, but rather points to him returning to his true nature, to his true self, which could very well mean that he knows exactly what to say to his father to get back in his good graces. The younger son, practicing his speech, says he's no longer worthy to be called a son, while simultaneously repeating familial, paternal language. And then his statement of repentance, I have sinned against you and against heaven, echoes the hollow repentance of Pharaoh in Exodus, given to Moses and Aaron when he's just trying to get the plagues to stop. As one preacher puts it, the younger son seems to be saying, I'll go home to daddy and sound religious. 
The younger son is, at best, an ignorant, overindulged fool, and at worst, he is greedy and manipulative. But whether his repentance was sincere or not, we're never given a clear answer. It doesn't matter. Before the son has even made it all the way back, his father runs out to meet him. Genuine repentance or not does not matter in the face of this father's love. So let's talk for a moment about this father. Most readings of our parable tend to make the father as a stand-in for God. And the father does have some great qualities that point us in that direction. He is clearly generous, extravagantly so. When he sees his son returning home, he is filled with compassion. It is this visceral, from-the-gut reaction. Compassion that should remind us of the Samaritan, who stops to help the dying man on the road. Or of Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, who feels that same compassion when he sees the funeral procession for the widow's only son. It indicates recognition that the one who might be considered dead could become alive again. There is, however, a sense that this father might be too indulgent, too permissive. He gives his youngest son his full inheritance without fight, and he welcomes him back without question. Perhaps the younger son knows he is able to come home without fear because dad always gives him what he asks for. Equally problematic for this father, and particularly for the idea that he represents God, is the relationship he has with his elder son. Most readings of this story center around the celebration of the youngest son's return. Some a man had two sons, and once the party starts, most of us, including dad, seem to lose count. The eldest son finds out about the return and the celebration after it's already begun. No one ran out to invite the older son, and no one noticed that he was missing. Apparently, the youngest son isn't the only one to get lost in this story. A break is found in the relationship between father and eldest son. The older son is angry. Seeing himself as less than a son, he negatively reinterprets his place, his role in the family. So he is offended by the other son's newfound place in it. The language he uses with his father distances himself from their family, calling his brother, this son of yours. Even were the brother's relationship a good one, the older brother cannot find it in his heart to rejoice at the news of the younger's return. His own sense of being ignored by both the reinstated brother and the happy father counters any possible joy he might have had. As one commentator observes, the father indulges the one who slights him and slights the one who indulges him. One son has returned, but now the other is lost, and the father has to go looking for this one in order to make his family complete. 
it says that the father pleads with his eldest. And the verb used there is parakaleo, which has a sense of pleading, but also simultaneously of comforting. But then we end the parable. We end the parable without any real resolution for this family. In this household, no one has expressed sorrow at hurting another, and no one has expressed forgiveness. Was the younger son genuine? Has he turned it around? Does the father's appeal to the elder son make a difference? What will happen between the brothers when the father dies? We don't know. Now, I don't think that the parable of the lost sons is so much an allegory for our relationship with God, or even, thankfully, a model for how to function as a family. But rather, I propose that it serves almost as a negative exemplar. Not quite, but also kind of a what not to do. This parable, it challenges us to ask ourselves, how do we faithfully attend to those closest to us, to the relationships we have with those who are closest to us? How do we notice who is missing? And then what does it mean to seek the lost and care for them? I think this parable family, it gives us a jumping off point, albeit an imperfect one, for answering those questions. How do we seek the lost? First, we listen. Really and truly listen to what others are saying. Perhaps if the father had listened better to his eldest son or the sons to their father, they could have taken steps to understand what the other was feeling, what he was experiencing, thus stopping one of them from becoming lost. Too often we just don't listen, and I am guilty of this. Whether out of defensiveness or my own idea of self-importance, I spend much of my listening time waiting for my next opportunity to speak. Or perhaps we just listen with judgment or condescension, which only serves to further stop up our ears. Particularly, I think about our current experience of racial injustice. Our black and brown brothers and sisters have been telling us over and over again for centuries about the inequality, the hatred, and the violence that they have faced. How many of us were willing to hear that? And then, after we listen, we work to remember to remember, work to put back together the pieces. Like the younger son may or may not have done, we confess our wrongdoing, genuinely and truly repenting for the things that we've done that may have pushed another away. And then we have to act. I hear about the suffering and the struggle of someone in my family, but I do nothing. No matter, no, uh, no wonder they suddenly get lost. Care, love, those are active words. They require that something be done. When God is looking for Abel and Cain replies, 
Am I my brother's keeper? What he is really asking is, do I really have to care about what happens to that guy? The implicit and obvious answer is yes, of course you do. Upon hearing that his eldest son was not at the party, never mind the fact that he forgot to invite him in the first place, the father goes to his son. He paracleos, urges with care and concern his son to join them inside. Whether or not that was effective is left to be seen, but we have to hope that the father did not give up that he continued to care for his son, that he didn't go back to normal when the fuss had died down. And sometimes to fix something that is broken, you have to get rid of the systems and structures and whatever that existed before that caused the problem in the first place. Author Austin Channing Brown says, I believe firmly that to practice love is to disrupt the status quo, which is masquerading as peace. And then finally, hopefully, we are able to find cause for celebration. We find reconciliation, or at least the hope for it. The damage we had thought would be forever begins to show signs of repair. The things we thought were lost or dead to us return, and we can rejoice. In spite of the continued brokenness of the world, we celebrate the restoration. We share our joy so that others will help prevent the recovered from ever being lost again. Last week, I listened to a podcast about Marsha P. Johnson. She was a trans woman of color who was instrumental in the Stonewall Uprising and the gay rights movement that followed. Johnson, who was called St. Marcia by her friends, was once quoted as saying, Jesus is the only man I could really trust. He listens to all my problems and he never laughed at me. With another trans woman, Marsha opened a house uh, and a shelter in New York for queer kids who literally had nowhere else to go. Seeing those lost children and knowing firsthand what that was like, she worked to create a place of emotional and physical safety. She and the other drag mothers of the house worked hard and often in dangerous situations so that the kids in their care would never be in the same circumstance. She never stopped caring for the lost, the ones no one else would attend to. If Marsha P. Johnson isn't a model for family, for church, and for the world, then I don't know what is. Friends, What counts in the parable of the lost sons, what counts for the family, also counts for the world. A father had two sons. The details can be filled in and filled by any among us. We do not have all the answers about the parable family, but the scriptures give us hope for the sons in Luke's parable. 
They should also give us hope for our own reconciliations from the personal to the international. We need to take count not only of our blessings, but also of those in our families and in our communities. And once we count, we need to act. Finding the lost, whether they are sheep, coins, or people, takes work. It also requires our efforts. And from those efforts, there is potential and hope for wholeness and for joy. Amen.